They say banks are boring, credit unions are dull. We don't agree, we love them all. Except for the big banks and neos who take a market share, make consumers blue. Need a fresh perspective, new direction. Take back banking and make some connections. If you feel stuck, it's not your fault. Here's an idea, try thinking outside the vaults. Usually, I try to come up with a clever little analogy that helps prepare listeners for the episode and encapsulates the most important idea from the conversation. But today, all I have for you is a word. Humility. Hi, my name is Zach Garver, and you're listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast for community banks and credit unions who are never too big to care about individual account holders. The first Veterans Day was more than 100 years ago on November 11th, 1919. It was originally called Armistice Day and marked the official end of World War I. In 2020, some people use the entire month of November as a time to honor the men and women who serve in the various branches of the military. These soldiers certainly deserve it. And here's why I can't provide a tidy little metaphor to sum this episode up because there's no comparison that I could think of that does justice to our veterans. I thought about all my family members and friends who serve. I thought about their choice to stand in harm's way, to answer the call to protect everything that makes my current quality of life possible. After that, all I could think of was how humbled I felt, and also how surprised I was by the humility that emanated from my guest, Joseph Cabrera, a ranger-tabbed West Point grad who saw combat in Afghanistan and currently serves as Casasa's chief of staff, and the incredible humility of every single veteran who works at Casasa. These people don't strut or brag, they just show up every day and do amazing work supporting our clients and loving their coworkers. That's a big reason why we like to hire veterans and why we think you should seriously consider it too. I hope you enjoy this episode, and as we head into Thanksgiving, take a moment to say thanks for our men and women who wore the uniform or who wear it today. Welcome, Joseph Cabrera, to Thinking Outside the Vault. I am really excited about this uh, episode that we're going to be doing, that uh, you were instrumental in in suggesting um, something to honor our veterans as a as a whole and, and to talk a little bit about that at Casasa. Uh, so w- welcome. Man, Zach Gar, thanks for having me, man. Excited. Cool. I'd like to start actually, because uh, I'd like to start with you introducing yourself and telling our listeners a little bit about what you do at Casasa. Sure. I'm a so executive vice president and chief of staff here at Casasa. It's kind of a dual hat. It started off as chief of staff and really just Similar to what you would think out there in either the political world or even in some of the military and government agencies, it's really kind of the, if you look at the executive team as the pistons, look at the CEO as the gas pedal, I'm kind of the oil between everything that just kind of makes, you know, the friction go away wherever those pieces are. And so helping with some of those matters. And then we're, as a recent, really taking on a lot of our strategic initiatives. And, you know, as we have new product rollouts and, you know, we have new go-to-market strategies really putting the horsepower behind that, providing mentorship, leadership, and guidance to our general managers that run those individual facets. It's about eight of them. So oversee that entire initiative in addition to running my more traditional chief of staff role here at the company. Okay. So this episode, we're going to be talking a lot about about veterans, about military service, a little bit about Casasa's culture, and and some kind of higher level leadership theory stuff from that experience. With that, I'd love to talk, hear you talk about your military service. Um, just give us that background. Yeah, I you know my my military service started actually in in New York. I went there for for college. Went to West Point for undergrad. Uh, and you are kind of serving right off the bat there. Um, and so, you know, my, I grew up in South Texas, made a big change, moved to the, to the Northeast and, and, you know, got to see, uh, some incredible parts of that, you know, part of the U S there that I just hadn't had that experience with. And then including, you know, kind of being part of a, a major institution here that, you know, really kind of helped set the foundation for me after that moved into, you get to pick your job, uh, based on how well you do at the Academy. And okay. so I was fortunate enough to, 
get what I wanted to do, which is really dive into the reconnaissance field in the military. And so from there, my first job out of the gate was actually work, you know, working, working near the Arctic Circle there in Alaska, uh, actually with an airborne reconnaissance unit. So, you know, this is everything you want as a young 20 year old, you know, leader, just jumping out of airplanes, uh, <laughs> you know, snowshoeing around, you know, skiing, pulling sleds and, you know, doing your reconnaissance stuff. It was, it was a ton of fun to be able to lead a 30, 35 person team, you know, doing those kinds of things. Uh, and then, you know, I just kind of from there, you know, had multiple different assignments after that, all within the reconnaissance field, you know, spent some time overseas in Afghanistan and, and you know, did some other, you know, other tours and other different places. And then towards the end of my career uh, in the military, so, you know, kind of the better part of a decade is where I spent serving wow. uh, towards the end of my career there is kind of where I jumped in the special operations community and really was able to kind of elevate what I was doing uh, you know, kind of in the, in the earlier parts of my career. So absolutely no regrets, uh, you know, probably, uh, probably one of the best jobs I ever had. Wow. That's fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to, you know, enter West Point and, and embark on a career in the military? Yeah, it's a good question, man. You know, I think when I think back on it, it started when I was a child, I, you know, my, it was, for lack of better words, it's kind of family business. You know, my dad, just, <laughs> you know, it was, it just, you know, people would go into their family restaurant or, or their textile factory. And for me, it was, you know, if we weren't in Texas, we were going on another assignment somewhere where my dad was getting stationed. And so, you know, he spent 26 years in, in the army. And so growing up and, uh, and my folks, I got to give them kudos. They really did a good job about making a move every two to three years seem adventurous and just really fun. And so for me, it was just nice. something I kind of grew up looking up to doing and kind of also early on, uh, in my life, we were, it's kind of been a mantra of the family. Hey, look, two things you can be whatever you want in this life. Just be the best at it. And two, highly consider giving back to your community first before you go pursue what you want to go do. And mm. so this was kind of part of my, well, you know what, no matter what I decide to do in my life, I'm going to go serve first. And this was kind of my way to do it. I think there's a lot of ways to serve, but I think this was my decision just kind of watching uh, my father, you know, do his, you know, do his time in uniform. So that's kind of was the encouragement point for me to, to jump in the military and do those things. That's amazing. Tell me a little bit about what appealed to you about joining Kasasa. Like why make that jump out of, it sounds like you had a pretty fruitful career in the military. So for me, it was actually kind of a calling uh, because where my dad served, my mom was, it was a pretty big entrepreneur. You know, she always had okay. restaurants and cafes. So I kind of had this really cool, interesting two worlds where I had, you know, I saw the service part of my family. And then I also saw the business side of my family at the same time. So I think there was a calling for me after I'd kind of done my time in service to kind of come back into business. You know, I remember helping her when I was a kid, you know, at, at her restaurants or cafes. And so for me, I think I always had an age to give back into business in some way, shape or form when it made sense. And so at this particular time, it just kind of made sense for me to, to jump out and, and try something new. And then Kasasa was, you know, I didn't know Kasasa when I first got out. But the one thing I would ask advice to a lot of my peers who've gotten out before me, I'd ask them, what industry is appealing? Like, where, mm -hmm. where are guys like us, guys and gals like us fit? And almost resounding, everybody was like, look in the financial markets. And I was like, why is that? Oh. Yeah. And they said, well, you, you know, you remember it was kind of a locker room in the army. And so it kind of feels that way in the financial markets. Fast, it's fast paced. You know, everything is highly competitive. Um, folks are, you know, there's a little bit more sense of camaraderie because of the grunt work that goes into it. Mm -hmm. And so kind of just trusting that advice, it kind of got me looking in that direction. And at that particular time, and this is a longer story, but kind of the short version is, uh, you know, Kasasa was looking for somebody to kind of fill these shoes. And then just through kind of various kind of different events and, and you know, points of interaction, you know, I was able to talk to Gabe, who's the CEO of the company here. And, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, now I've been here with the company for the better part of three and a half years. And so at just kind of how what started my, my journey towards Kasasa was finance but then really understanding what FinTech actually was. And, and uh, I'm super happy to have found them, found us. That's really cool. And, and of course, well, not of course, people may not know this, but we actually have uh, about a dozen or more uh, veterans currently working at Kasasa. And uh, it's something that we, it receives a lot of, I would say, I don't know. It seems to me like it receives a fair amount of recognition. Like there's a, there's a company value on having people who serve. There's a lot of cultural stuff that, 
you know, things like uh, challenge coins that are given out that's that's based on, or I've been told is based on a system that, that exists mm-hmm. in the military. That's right. And uh, we what we'd like to do actually at this point is uh, give you guys a little bit of a window into some of the other veterans who are working at Casasa. So we've asked everybody to, to record a little snippet, tell you a little bit about themselves and, and what they do. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and play some of those now. This is Frank Wiseman. I'm a client success manager here at Casasa. I served from 1999 to 2005 as a sergeant and an infantryman in the United States Marine Corps. Super five. Justin Schaefer. I served four years in the Marine Corps, and my current role at Casasa is senior associate product manager. Hi, this is Mike Davis, your CSO. I am very proud to have served in the United States Air Force, assigned to a Huey 53 as a wartime medic. I was stationed in Dakto, Vietnam and Shanghai, China, serving three years, 10 months, and four days. Hello, my name is Michael Weigel. I'm a lieutenant in the United States Navy Reserve. I have been serving as a public affairs officer for about eight and a half years, and my role at Casasa is client marketing consultant. My name is Veronica Guess. I was a senior airman in the United States Air Force, May 2001 through May 2005, and I am currently a client success manager at Casasa. Mark Medley served seven years with the U.S. Naval Reserves as a Petty Officer Second Class, Hospital Corpsman Second Class. He is a Client Success Manager. You know, as, as you heard there, there are a lot of pe- different people and a lot of different departments working at Casasa who have also served in the military. We're part of the purpose of this podcast is to just honor that service and to honor the kind of commitment that it takes to go and and work in in the armed services. But what I'd I'd like to hear from you, Joseph, is um, a little bit of backstory. Uh, in, In my experience, when I have said to people, friends, acquaintances, you know, thank you for your service. Uh, sometimes there's a little bit of not quite pushback, but it, it seems awkward. Like, is that what's going on there? I mean, it, it, to me, it seems like the right thing to say, but I'm not sure. Is that, is that the best way to honor someone who's been working in the military? Yeah, Zach, first of all, that is the right thing to say. I think that part of it is a two way street. I think we're both getting comfortable with when you hear that kind of reaction and for me, for the folks that maybe don't understand, if you ever like want walked and said someone, you know, to somebody who you knew maybe had served or wearing a hat that says, you know, U.S. Navy on an army or whatever, and you say, thank you for your service, you'll sometimes get a reluctance. And I, and I know what you mean. Um, and that reluctance is just, is this, it's probably a couple of things. One, culturally in the military, almost universally across all branches, no matter where you serve, very early on, you're told that it's mission first. It doesn't matter what you do. It's how successful the team is. And ultimately, just kind of keep to yourself, right? Ultimately, the reason that you do what you do is because there's incredible people that we uh, that are here in the United States that are doing amazing things, right? Whether it's coming up with cures of cancer, whether that's going out there and teaching your young ones in school, whether it's helping folks get through COVID, whatever it might be, they're also playing a fundamental part in the American fabric. You're just a piece of that part, right? You're just kind of the doorman, door lady, you know, kind of making sure that we keep the riffraff out and protect mm-hmm. the folks that are really providing value for our country. So don't think that you're better than anyone. That would, that's what it means to serve. And so I think when you get kind of a thank you, it feels you kind of, you know, we, we feel like we're being put on a pedestal and that's not where we want to be. You know, for us, we want to be woven into the fabric. And so I think we're, we're, and also, you know, quite frankly, it's not only was it an honor to serve, but for most of us, it was a ton of fun. And so in a lot of ways, getting thanks for the American people, it's really, it's awkward because we could really just be saying the same thing back to you. I mean, that's always, it's generally my response when folks say, hey, thank you for your service. My response usually is, well, thank you for all you do, right? Because I wouldn't do any of what I did if it wasn't for a great country that, you know, was worth fighting for. And so I think that's kind of where you get that push and pull, but it comes from a good place. And I think it's just both of us understanding that once we do, then I think we understand it from both of us. It's coming from a good place. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I know. I know. For me, when I say that, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that I I considered joining the Navy out of high school. I ended up not making that choice, but but not for 
you know, I was healthy, I was able, I was interested, all of those reasons, and I didn't end up doing it. And, you know, so when, when I meet somebody who did serve it, I, I'm cognizant of the fact that at any point your job could have asked you to take a bullet for me. And really, there's no reason why I, I shouldn't also have, have been there except for that choice. And, and that's worth to me, that's just worth honoring that the people are willing to make that sacrifice so that I can have the life that I do. So that's but that's really helpful. It's a, I've, I've wondered before about it and it's, it's good to have some clarity about, you know, what's going on there and just have some empathy <laughs> for the process. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Zach. I think it's super cool, man. I think there, there's probably folks that say without even thinking about it, but I think having this conversation here, hopefully for the folks that do hear vets or non-vets or listen to it and, and know that it's both coming from a good place. The awkwardness is coming from a good place and the thanks is coming from a good place. And so I think at the end of the day, we can chalk that up as a win. Cool. Well, let's, let's transition a little bit to talking about the, the culture at Kasasa and how that interacts with, say, kind of the and the experience of serving the military or, or, or what are the intersections there, you know? So what would you say about Kasasa appeals to the veterans who work here? You know, for me, what, and I can probably speak for a few of them. We've huddled on this before the other vets that work there. It's a very mission forward company. Um, you know, if you think about all the good conversations and Zach, I know you've been a part of them, but it is very much, what are we, what are we doing to help our, clients and ultimately the people of this country to, to live better, more financially flexible and free lives. You know, what are we doing to help that? And with that mission kind of front and center, it's something that vets really gravitate towards. It's kind of in our DNA to say, you know, I'm not here for accolades, trophies, and, and so on and so forth, but give me a mission that actually is serving a bigger cause and that I'll get behind. So I think that's, you know, that's something that really does um, does resonate. And I think the second part is just the fact culture. I mean, a culture at Kasasa is something we actively work at every day to, to make it a, not just to have culture and ping pong tables and, you know, jelly beans in the break room, <laughs> you know, but it's, you know, we're actually trying to, we actually evaluate. I can tell you as an executive team and the leaders in the company and every, like, we sit there and every decision we make is through the context of our values. Every, Every thought that we have about how our employees are doing or how we can better serve our clients is through the lenses of our culture. And is it ultimately serving the right things, you know? And so I think that resonates with vets and it's not a, it's not very long that you have to be at the company to feel that it's almost like walking into a room with thick air. You can tell that it isn't mm -hmm. just, Oh man, something, some values printed on the back of a scan card. And you know, people just got to look down to remember them. I mean, people, kind of bleed what we believe here. And so I think that's what resonates with vets quite a bit. Absolutely. I know for myself, when, when I started at the company and, and for those of you, I think most listeners may not know this, but we use a lot of language from, uh, from Sparta. So in the office, we have rooms that are named after, you know, landmarks in, in ancient Sparta. We talk about, we, we call employees Spartans and we talk about the phalanx. And there's this incredibly, of course, rich military history around Sparta. There's some things that are not as, as great, but that's, I mean, that's history, right? You just, that's right. You, you take what it is mm -hmm. <laughs> without making a ton of judgments about it. Um, and I remember asking Gabe, because I, one of my favorite books, absolutely favorite books is uh, Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield, which is Solid a, a book, no man. novelization of the, the battle at Thermopylae. And, and it just gives you this window in, into Spartan culture that I'd never seen. And, and, and if you've seen the movie 300, you've got like a little bit of a window into it. But this, this novel by Stephen Pressfield takes it to the next level. And I remember asking Gabe if, he, if he'd read the book because I was like, there's no way. There's no way there's all this great stuff and, and, and that somebody hasn't read this book because that was kind of my impression after I read it. It's like, Oh, this is so cool. Like you, you want to, you want to be there. You want to go back to that time and experience it. And, uh, and you know, of course, so he'd read the book and it just, it was, it was amazing to me to see how well and how healthy of a culture we had with, with these pieces woven into it. So it was a very interesting thing. It's exciting to me that you read the book too. It's I, I, anytime somebody listened to me, I recommend it. <laughs> I have to, it's on a required reading. Like anybody who's listening to this right now, if you haven't read it, read it. It's a quick, it's a quick read. And it's, uh, it just goes to show you, show you what the kind of, the, it, you're right. It isn't, oh, it isn't, 
there's some parts of the book that are really hard to digest. You know, even somebody mm-hmm. like myself who grew up in the warrior class, you can be like, well, okay, we've definitely grown beyond that and progressed. But I do think that it's a really awesome book to kind of just at least understand when, it, when you, when you are in a culture rich environment and people are all kind of focused on, you know, kind of the bigger, bigger idea there, it's kind of neat to read. So that book kind of really captured that for sure. Yeah. What, uh, this is, this is tangential to that, but what do you think, you know, our listeners, uh, um, this is something that I've, I've observed. It seems like there's a bit of a, a talent challenge, a recruiting challenge within community financial institutions, right? It's, it's not necessarily as exciting as going to work, you know, in, in technology or, or something like that. So, the, and, and it seems like they're having a hard time recruiting, the, the high quality candidates that they're hoping to get, but, but vets seem like they might. And my hope is that this will, this episode will at least help some institutions to think about more seriously about hiring vets. But what would you say makes vets different from maybe other employees? And I don't mean that as like a quality. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to make a judgment there, but like, what is it about vets that, that are unique when they enter the workforce? Yeah, no, first of all, I think, I think vets would do awesome. And a lot of these, you know, a lot of our financial institutions, they're very community driven. And a lot of them after the service really want to just go back to where they grew up uh, or maybe where their spouse is from and figure out how to continue to serve in their communities. And so for a lot of them, I think it's education. Just, Hey, look, can we co-educate one another that, you know, vets are probably a talent pool to look at uh, and veterans, you know, Hey, institutions that are, you know, banking or, you know, our credit unions or community banks, it's a really good spot to work with. But your question about why vets, um, you know, why, why this might be a good fit. I think there's a unique way in which vets think about their job and think about what they do. Um, and this doesn't, I think for a lot of vets, this is probably what their mom and dad put in them early on. But I definitely mm. know this is where the military really does a great job in instilling these kind of core values and really just kind of reprograms the ticking clock into a way that kind of, I think is, is about citizenship. And so like, if you think about our training and what we go through, it literally is like scrubbing all the paint, rust, primer off a vehicle and making it just blank. I mean, you spend the first Mm. couple months in your initial indoctrination into any of the services, just getting completely stripped down of what you were before. And then they build you back up into being somebody who's very team oriented, very mission oriented, very, you know, somebody who embodies a greater purpose, right? And even at the point of, you know, they almost never, I don't ever remember being told, Hey, you're going to need to put your life on the line to go defend something, you know, that's this ideal of the American way of life. I actually never had to get briefed that it was just kind of fundamentally part of, it just made sense. It was like, yo, of course, right. Cause we're all here for each other. And so mm-hmm. I think when, when institutions might look at the veteran talent pool, there's all the stuff that I think maybe comes up front and center is, well, they're operationally really great. They've got, you know, operational excellence. They're really organized. They show up on time. They're usually pretty respectful. But mm-hmm. that stuff aside, I think it's actually even deeper. Than, it is deeper than that. It's really like you're getting folks who've been taught and who've been put to the test about, hey, what does it mean to actually do something that's difficult to embrace adversity and to do it actually at all costs, so long as it's going to end up elevating the team in a good way. And so I think those are the things that make vets kind of uniquely different as far as the talent pool goes. That is really helpful. Um, and just for anybody who's listening, who's interested in the idea of maybe looking more seriously at hiring vets, we're going to include some links in the show notes, um, some useful resources for you, um, and just to help you along that journey. Um, and, and, you know, trying to kind of give, put some more color to this. Like I have seen, Kasasa just has an incredible attitude toward vets, honestly. I mean, I remember one of our, one of our, our vets, uh, Michael Wagle, she went away to Italy for two years to serve, you know, and she'd been, we've been, you know, working together and then, you know, she went away and like we, she was celebrated for her service and, and she knew her job was going to be here when she came back. And that made a huge impression on me. I mean, I've never worked at a large enough company where I had seen that kind of attitude and I just thought it was incredible. No, it's great. Cause I said, you know, we, it's an extension. I think the reason we embrace that so much is because it's an extension of what we are as a company. You know, if we're going to serve our communities and help our credit unions and banks serve their communities, you know, we got to really also kind of do a good job about 
it was easy for us to kind of serve those that want to go out and say, hey, guys, I need to take a year just because I'm going to go serve our country in a different capacity, but I'll be back. And you're absolutely right. We celebrate that. And it's a really cool mentality. But, you know, I don't think that this makes veterans better than anybody. I just want to be clear about that statement. It doesn't mean that, hey, look, you should only hire vets, although I think you're sure. not going to go wrong doing that. <laughs> I, you know, I think, you know, you're going to get some really great, hardworking folks. I think just uniquely, one of the things that's probably, you know, just on the thought of what makes vets, you know, kind of a, a really good pool of folks to pull from. You know, I was thinking about this kind of current environment now, you know, when I think about COVID and, and what's going on and, and how there's a lot of turbulence, especially within our, our industries that we serve, you know, in the financial mm-hmm. markets and yeah. in our community banking and, and credit union space. Um, you really need folks that are just kind of are, are hardened in a way that allows them to be resilient and deal with kind of ambiguous situations. And that's something the military was a great it was a great schoolhouse and a great canvas to learn and to then put to action, whether it was in combat, whether it was in training or whether it was just in something maybe more routine on a day to day. But one of the things that I can always flash back to as a reference point personally, and I'm sure this applies to other vets, are times where things just went off the rails and almost all the time. You know, it was, you know, chaos would ensue. And at the end of the day, you were still expected to win. And so I think having that kind of muscle memory is also what you're diving into the talent pool about because you got folks who've been hardened and been forged over and over through the fire. And so when you have them kind of come into a company like Kasasa and we're all saying, Hey, guess what? This is happening in our industry right now where folks are kind of biting their nails and sweating their palms. Veterans in a lot of ways look at that as, okay, bring it on. This is great. Right. I've been before. <laughs> right. It's kind of like, this is good. So I think you gain that kind of resilience, right. That's kind of uh Maybe hard to teach if you weren't in a job that allowed you to experience that day to day. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Joseph Cabrera in a moment. Everybody loves a good BOGO. Am I right? B-O-G-O. You know, buy one, get one free. I mean, as long as we aren't talking about root canals or bad haircuts, it's a deal you can't refuse. So what if you could offer a loan at your institution that would generate 50% more originated balances for the same amount of effort as a normal loan? And it doesn't require you to offer rate concessions, lower your credit standards, or offer complimentary toasters. I mean, sure, it's not a BOGO, but geez, that's still pretty awesome. Well, the loan I'm talking about is real, and it's called the Casasa Loan. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. In fact, we have clients who are so happy with it. It's the only personal and auto loan they're offering, and the performance they're reporting has to be seen to be believed. That's where the 50% number comes from. So check it out for yourself. Just click on the link in the show notes that says Casasa Loans Success Story. And we're back with Joseph Cabrera. Uh, One of the concepts that we talked about coming into this was... um, was unity of command and, and the importance of that concept. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, it's a, it's a term that I know we use in the Army, and I actually think it's something that's used across all branches and, um, of service. And this is actually kind of where the military person is actually, I think, really misunderstood. They're usually seen as really good order takers, which is true. We can definitely take orders and, and, and execute them uh, you know, to a high level. But really what unity of command really states is it allows, it's a couple of things. One, it allows unity of command. The whole concept behind that, first of all, is creating an environment where actually collaboration can happen, you know, and, you know, where I practice unity of command often. uh, And again, this is, I think, a part that may be misunderstood from, you know, the outside looking in is that oftentimes I would grab my, uh, my other directs, you know, on a, on a reconnaissance team or whatever we were doing. And we would go back and forth and, and, you know, have critical and good arguments about the best way to do this certain kind of operation. And, you know, I'd have an idea of how it needed to get done. And then other folks would say, well, that didn't quite work. And so actually, there's a lot of just like you would see in the civilian workplace, there's a lot of just back and forth about understanding what the best way to get to a good solution is. Ultimately, though, the unity command part comes in where we say, okay, now that we decided what plan A is going to be, I've heard all the opinions and all the thoughts here. Now we're going to decide to go with A. And when we leave the door, the only way, this may not be the right decision. This may just be the decision we're making now. We may end up finding out that, 
you know, this isn't, uh, this wasn't maybe the best course of action after reality actually hits. But in the meantime, until we get that to that point, everybody here has to support it 100%. Because if you don't, we know that without unity of command, as soon as you walk out of that room, if we're, even if you disagreed with it at the beginning, but if it's still on the spectrum of right decision, we just pick right decision, bravo, instead of right decision, you know, Yankee or whatever mm-hmm. it was. You, that's the only way that we know we're going to, the only way we're going to achieve success is by having 100% of the force point in the right direction. And so yeah. that's the whole concept of unity command, which is give a space so that we can collaborate. We can go back and forth on. But then when we do step out of that room, we've got to be 100% on the same page. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Well, and, and one of the things that you had said earlier um, when we were chatting about this was just that that it's, you know, that vets get mistaken. Their, their discipline gets mistaken for, you know, roboticism or kind of a drone like behavior, right? just doing what you're told. But mm-hmm. I thought that was such a beautiful way to say that, like, it, it, it really is a discipline. It's a choice. It's a, it's a thoughtful thing. You know, it, it's a thoughtful approach to the situation, not an unthinking approach. That's right, Jack. Yeah, it's a that is a that is there's no doubt there are vets out there who probably have maybe a hard time being creative. But I would argue that, you know, with Unity Command, you also have this other concept called commander's intent. And really, like even me as a, you know, as a even my first job as a reconnaissance team leader, you know, running a, a team of 30 to 35 folks. Even for me, I would tell the team, hey, look, um, this is what we need to go accomplish. Ultimately, this is what our end state looks like. And I would give them creative right to develop an execution plan that would support that. And so I think that one of the things that gets kind of misunderstood is, well, if I don't give specific orders, I'm not sure that this vet is really going to do a good job. And the reality of it is you just need to give them intent. What's our intent here, right? What are we trying to accomplish? And then be right, piggyback right off of that and say, I'm giving you the freedom to come up with a really strong execution plan. Because that's actually what we're good at. We're actually good at being creative once we know what it is that we're trying to go tackle. And so I think that's something that, you know, if you parlay those two things together, um, you can really get the most out of your people and not just veterans. I think just, you know, employees and, and teammates in general. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a great point. And I know for, for our listeners, for, for leaders who are running finite community, financial institutions, it's a heavily regulated industry. There's a lot on the line. I mean, you know, we talk, we talk about institutions in terms of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, right? There's a huge amount of, there's people's paychecks, there's their livelihood, like they are, you know, banks and credit unions have been entrusted with this incredibly important resource. And there is an aversion to risk that's totally understandable, right? And you want to come into a situation, you want to pick the best strategy, you want to have the right answers. And, uh, but but maybe you don't. I mean, and that's of course what we're seeing with the kind of technology disruption is just that you know, the, and or or you know, just pandemic disruption, right? Like the thing that you thought was going to happen in 2020, almost certainly didn't. <laughs> I don't know what you thought was going to happen in 2020, but it's safe to say that like it did not look the way that you thought it was going to. What do you? What what would be your encouragement for those institution leaders and and how they should approach a situation where they feel the pressure to have the right answers and the truth is they don't? I think you got to tell your people that you know, and I think you got to tell them in a way that still exudes confidence. And it's tricky. This is the art form of leadership. This is the part that you know, no matter how many books you read or how many times you study you know, different philosophies behind, you know, everything from Stephen Covey to Brene Brown, the thing you're not going to be able to do, and you got to just kind of accept that is be perfect the first time that you kind of, you know, embrace that. I think that um, as a leader, if I can, you know, if I'm looking at where these institutions are today and how they can exude confidence without losing, you know, respect for the office that they hold, so to speak, I think it's just, first of all, be very be very blunt and direct with what the problem is, right? And treat the problem as everybody's problem. So in this particular instance, you know, you may say that right now our, our institution faces X, Y, and Z, and these are the major risks. If we don't come together as a team, this is what, this is what it could look like, and it wouldn't be good for any of us. Right now, I'm telling you that I don't have the perfect answer for this, but I know that this team here with the creative minds and the ability for us to think outside the box can come up with a really awesome solution to these problems. 
And if it was just predicated on me coming up with these decisions, I wouldn't need any of you, but I need you. So let's figure out how to do this together. And I think you've got to sometimes tell people that over and over again for them to believe it. And what you'll find is people rise to the occasion. They really do. I think one of the things that I, even in my experience as a military guy, the teams that didn't do well were the teams who were ran by officers and senior non-commissioned officers who felt like they had to have the right answers all the time. And the reality mm-hmm. of it is, is I've never been in this valley in Afghanistan on the Pakistan-Afghan border ever. Nobody else has either. So for me to go out there and <laughs> say, hey, I know exactly how it's going to go down. It's just kind of a, it's a, it's actually offensive, right? Like there's, that's not the way that you lead. The way that you lead is by being very upfront about what it is and what it isn't. And then saying, hey, look, so this is how, you know, we got to stay disciplined about our approach. We got to lean on what we do know. But at the same time, let's get creative here and figure out new ways to kind of, you know, do this thing. And so I think that those are the things that leaders in our institution space can really capitalize on. Because it is fairly hierarchical out there, right? You got a CEO, a CFO. I mean, it's, it's very, and it's an old traditional industry. And so I mm-hmm. think kind of getting yourself to think outside the box might take a little bit of time, but I would dare for folks to try it. And I think they'll find that the results are going to be that, you know, they'll really appreciate the results. Well, and one of the things that you had mentioned as well was uh, the importance of a no blame culture, right? And, and these decisions, and you, you, you touched on this just a minute ago, like the, the team making the decision, the team is addressing the problem, the team is making the decision. But that no blame culture, I think is, uh, I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit more for our listeners. No blame culture is a, is a must. I would say for anybody who's standing up or maybe you're coming in as a brand new leader into an organization or whatever, it's the, it's the absolute permission for your folks to do their best thinking. And it gives them the foundation to understand that as long as they're oriented towards trying to do the best for the company, I always tell folks, we're going to fall, but when we fall, we should be falling forward. And we're not going to blame anybody, right? We need to blame the problem. We need to kind of focus on what the situation is. Because what ends up happening in organizations when they do, I don't think anybody has a blame culture or does it on purpose, but we definitely know that they exist. And it can usually look something like this, where it's some situation occurred and we immediately want to tie a person's name to the problem. What we end up doing is no longer solving for the problem, but we end up figuring out why the person's messed up, were they the right hire, all these yeah. things that actually didn't help us solve the, the problem still sitting over there festering and it's doing its more damage. And so well, and it's, it's actually, often under the auspices of uh, accountability, right? You're holding a person accountable for, for whatever their shortcoming was. That's right. You know, and if you get the right people on the team, they're going to blame themselves. They, they are. They're just going to, they're going to take it strong. If you have a good team, these folks are going to already know that this was not the right way or they messed up. I would often find though, the reason no blame cultures are super important, it allows your people to dare boldly every day, right? It allows them to go out there and do their best, even if that means they're going to get their knees skinned. Mm-hmm. What we don't want to do is a lot of the times when you find organizations having a hard time progressing is because no one shows up to work really trying to dare boldly. They're just kind of there. I don't want to step outside the lines because I don't want to get hit on the hands for doing something wrong. And so you got to balance that, right? You can't have a bunch of rogues out there, but you do have to kind of give folks permission. So that's why that no blame culture is super important. Focus on the problem, not on the people who maybe were part of the problem. But honestly, as a leader, if I put that person in charge of an initiative, then I'm also to blame as well, right? Because I trusted that person to get it done. And there was a reason I trusted them. If we didn't didn't do it right, um, then we all take, we all kind of take ownership of that. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a, that's a great point. Now, I'm curious. I want to push a little bit on this idea of, of unity of command, which I think, it, you know, based on my understanding, it, it could sort of feel like just, I mean, you know, this is what we decided and you got to follow this no matter what. You got to do everything you can to make this outcome happen. But uh, there's, you know, there, I'm, I'm probably going to get this quote wrong, but I'm going to do, do my best here. Is that, you know, the, the best laid plan, it doesn't survive contact with the enemy. Um, you know, and for financial institutions, there might not be an enemy, right? I mean, we like to talk about the mega banks, but, but maybe there's not a mega bank in, in your town or whatever, but the, the, there is chaos, right? Mm-hmm. 2020 has taught us anything. There's chaos <laughs> and that plan may not survive contact with whatever chaos is in your sphere of influence. So what would you recommend to people? How do you change the plan when you are face to face with the chaos? When you, when you think about plans that you put into place, it's really easy to want to blame a leader 
when the plan doesn't go right. Like you said, you're like, all right, this is what we're going to do. You step into the fold, you get hit in the face with two by four, right? You're like, okay, <laughs> that's not, okay, that's, wow. Didn't even get half a step into the plan there. And I'm really, now we're off there. We spend too much time dwelling on, oh, well, you know, this person didn't make the right call. You know, hey, this person, you know, really should have listened to me, whatever those things are. The way that you get ahead of that, the way that you kind of make sure that when those situations happen, we'd all love for a plan to go mostly right. Is you actually have to part of the planning process is, okay, we're going to pick plan A, but we have to talk about what plan B and C is. We kind of have to go to a doomsday scenario that if this doesn't work, what are we going to do? So that way, when that two by four does hit you in the face, you kind of duck because you knew that that could have happened. And you said, okay, that plan A didn't work. Now we're going to plan B. And everybody was aligned at the beginning that this may not be exactly the way that it needs to go. But as a leader, I'm calling the shot. And this is what we're going to do. And when it doesn't go right, that's totally fine. We've already discussed contingencies. And now as a team, again, with the no blame culture, we can really pivot into, okay, what are we doing next and continue to execute? So I think that's how you get ahead of it. Uh, I think this is also what makes leaders really reluctant to make decisions sometimes is because they're worried about what their employees or what their teammates are going to say about them if it doesn't go right. I think what you got to do is instill a culture of, hey, this is just hard stuff. And we're going to make, I'm a human. I'm going to make the best decision I can. When and if it doesn't go right, we've got plan B and plan C. And I also expect y'all to help pull the wagon and go that direction if we need to. That's really helpful. And I think it's a great segue into my next question, which is around uh, ambiguity. Right. And, and I think there's a real tension in the world. I mean, for myself as, as an adult with, with three young kids, um, I think about my perspective of my parents and, and I was so sure that they had everything figured out, <laughs> you know, by the, the age that I met. Right. And now I'm, you know, I'm 33 and, and I look at my life and I think, man, I just don't, I don't have this figured out. And I'm sure my kids look at me and think I have it figured out, but there, there's this ambiguity, uh, about life. And I think that, especially in a, in a risk averse industry, like ambiguity can be viewed as the enemy, you know, maybe as much as chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Ambiguity is the enemy, but, uh, I would be interested to hear, uh, your perspective on, on how the military teaches people to deal with ambiguity and maybe even if possible, become comfortable with it. Early on in my career, I think about ranger training was a good way for me to understand kind of what ambiguity really was personified as. And it is ambiguity is what happens before chaos, right? It is the it's the suspense, right? If you're watching a really good horror flick or it's the um, it's the time when you watch people biting their nails at a rocket launch, that's that ambiguity where you're kind of really uncertain about what's going to unfold and all you can hinge yourself on is the worst case. And during those trainings that I had done, what I learned in those trainings was actually to embrace it as a friend, right? It's a really weird, it, it almost sounds just kind of, you know, are, are you kidding me, right? How are you, how can you, how can you befriend something so uh, horrible? But what the military actually did, as much as it may be seen from the outside looking in that it's a black and white organization, where growth happens is in the gray area. And that's where ambiguity mm-hmm. loves to live. And what I learned in my career and what I learned at like those different training events and those different kind of crucibles in my life is that ambiguity was actually a fundamental part of those trainings. They would not tell you, they would give you only enough information to be dangerous. They would only give you enough equipment to survive. It would only give you enough um, time to barely get it done. So a lot of ambiguity set in because you had to kind of figure out the best things to do with the things that you had. And what I realized is every single time I decided to fight ambiguity, I always came out underneath the car. It was always just, it just kind of was debilitating. You know, we, you know, folks couldn't move and you end up making bad decisions. When you kind of learn to embrace it and learn to say, you know what, on the, think of ambiguity much more as when I get through ambiguity, there's always growth on the other end. Then you start to embrace ambiguity. Every single time ambiguity comes up, you look at it more as like a, hey man, this is kind of a, a kind acquaintance that gets to show up in my life. And every time I see that acquaintance, I always seem to have betterment on the other side. And so I think, you know, the way that organizations like our institutions can really embrace that. It's just take baby steps. You know, I know it's hard to kind of, I'm thinking specifically right now about innovation. It can be really difficult to, you know, say, all right, we're going to move completely off of whatever we were doing and we're going to do, you know, we're going to go embrace all this new stuff and send our stuff into the cloud and use 
third parties to help us be more dynamic and so on and so forth. That might just be a big step for them. That might be too ambiguous. And so I think what you Mm -hmm. do is create space for yourself to kind of create small victories and to learn to embrace ambiguity. And it can come in a lot of way, different shapes or form, but you know, an easy way might be, let's pick one thing we're going to do this year. Let's pick a team that all they're going to do is deal with this new thing. And we're going to give them permission to be successful, right? We're not going to over babysit, none of that stuff. Let's see if they can help us launch all our data into the cloud, right? And get us into a point where we feel good about what's going on. And maybe we only start with a certain segment of our client base. And once we build that small victory, okay, good. That's embracement number one. Now let's keep doing this over and over again. And then we realize that growth comes out of that, but it does take that first step to get there. Well, I... You know, this has been such a great conversation. I want to be respectful of your time. Do you think we have time for maybe one more question here? Let's do it, man. Absolutely. All right. So one of the things that I really appreciate, you know, in the prep for this call, you dived right into this, but um, I'm going to set up this question a little bit. So uh, my, my wife and I uh, lost a child to SIDS at 11 weeks. And uh, through that, it's a very traumatic experience. And and we both came out of it with, with post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome, you know, PTSD, which I think most people will be familiar with at some level. Um, but we'll, you know, and you, you, it, it's something you think about like, oh, somebody comes back from combat in Afghanistan, like they've got they've got PTSD. When, when I speak with veterans or thank people for their service, like knowing what I have walked through my own traumatic experience, like there's a part of me that is grieving with vets as well, knowing that I can't even imagine what they've been through. I can't imagine what they've seen, what they've survived and, and what they're carrying with them. Um, and I'd love to, I mean, it could be a taboo subject, but like, let's go there. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience as a vet and, and dealing with those challenges? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a, first of all, Zach, man, sorry for, you know, for your loss. I know probably a lot of people don't know that. Um, but I think that's, there's a term that I like to use, which is like PTSD, uh, G is in golf, but like, it's the growth part of what happens with mm. PTSD, you know? And again, it's all in the eye of the beholder. It's if you choose to do that, it's if you choose to embrace the pain. And if you choose to embrace the pain and get better on the other end for it, getting better on the other end, sometimes is, it can be, it's, it's like mystical. I don't know what better always exactly is, but I know that it's going to be there. And so I'm sure you and your wife, for example, I'm just shooting in the dark here. Sure. You know, are probably better communicators, probably figured out that, wow, you know, we could really, we really tested ourselves through this thing. And not only that, but it probably makes you love harder with your kiddos that you have now, you know? And so I think that there's Absolutely. a lot of growth that happens, right? And it's the same thing for veterans. I think you end up, we end up finding there's just so much, no matter what you get taught in training and, and all the scenarios you could put, like nothing prepares you for seeing your best friend of, you know, for the last two years, everything you've done together, no longer being there with you. No one, nothing prepares yeah. you from seeing innocence being absolutely, uh, you know, destroyed right in front of you. And you're trying to do your best to, to prevent that. But sometimes you don't always get to, you're not always there on time and you kind of miss and, you know, the bad guys did their damage and, and you just kind of have to deal with that. And I think what, what's probably misunderstood and it's really cool that you actually set up the question that way is that I think all of us actually in the world, veterans and non-veterans actually all have some form of thing in our life that we've gone through. And I think that's right. And I think in the workplace, you know, I kind of sometimes joke with other vets that, you know, I think they're always thinking we're going to go postal at some second. That's probably (laughs) why it keeps them on edge. Like, do I hire this person or don't I? And the reality of it is, is we're all the same. It's actually, a, it's a very human condition, right? When yes. you have something, whether it's a car accident or whether it's a loss of a parent, a divorce, whatever it might be, those are the things that create trauma in your life. And then hopefully you're growing from that. And so, uh, you know, I think that when I think about the military and I think about what I'm probably talking to vets right now is, you know, they feel this sense of loss. Even some of them who maybe have handled combat stress and those things well, when they leave the military, they feel this tribal loss, which also creates anxiety and they're mm-hmm. not really sure who to trust. And I think one of the best things we can do is just humans is just embrace one another. Like one of the best things that Zach could do, which is what you just did is say, Hey, look, thank you for your service. I don't know what it's like. I see you wearing this killed in action bracelet. I don't know what that's like to have lost a friend like that, but I want to share with you that, you know, I've gone through my loan losses with a kiddo. Um, you know, back on this time. And, you know, if you ever want to talk or if you ever want to have a shoulder to lean on, or if you ever just want to just go for a round of golf, right? Like I'm, a, I'm here. 
That's amazing what just a gesture like that goes a long way. Veterans should do the same, right, to folks who are in the civilian workplace. And so I think those are the things that if we continue to look at each other more as humans instead of looking at each other as veterans, non-veterans, combat stress, non-combat stress, so on and so forth, I think allows us to humanize the process and just say, maybe we just need to help each other grow from these hard experiences. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and you're right. It does, it does change your perspective. Yeah, great. Thanks for, thanks for taking on that question. I think that's one that uh, maybe people have wondered about, but uh, I certainly haven't heard, heard many people pu- talking about it in a public forum. So, Well, I appreciate you asking, Zach. I mean, and for leaders that are out there that are running their I mean, and for employees and for folks on the team, like, thing not to forget is even the highest ranking people in a company in a community bank or credit, they're still going through stuff. Yeah. And I think when you start to see each other more like humans, the whole leadership process and mission first stuff starts to take it on a lot easier because you remember that we're humans first. And then we have this secondary duty, which is CEO or manager of this or technical person, this, mm-hmm. and then you start to just be able to understand the wavelengths a little bit better. And you start to kind of march a little bit much more with, with a better swagger once you kind of humanize each other first, you know? So I think, um, Heck, man, I appreciate you asking the question. It is a tough one, but I think if we're not talking about it, then it just makes it a lot more, you know, a lot more mysterious and weird than it actually is. Yeah. Wow. Joseph, this has been such an amazing conversation. I really appreciate your time and your your honesty and just diving into this with me. And I think that it is going to offer a ton of value for our listeners. So that's just, you know. All my gratitude for this. I really appreciate it. And well, I'm grateful for you, Zach. Thanks for doing this, man. I had a great time today going through all the all the questions and kind of all the ricochets and everything else. It's been a great time. Yeah. And uh, and I don't think I, I I don't say this lightly and I'm 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 confident in what I'm saying on, on behalf of Kasasa and everyone at Kasasa. We just want to honor our veterans and and the service and sacrifices that have been made uh, for our country and for any every one of us to live in America and, and have the lives that we do. And that's just, I don't know that we can say that enough. And, you know, I have the opportunity to say it now. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for all you do. If you couldn't tell, this conversation made me emotional and it renewed my respect for America's veterans. So if you take one thing away from this episode, it should be this. Even though we can't fully repay veterans for their sacrifice, we can do our best to see them as human beings and treat them with the compassion and courtesy that all human beings deserve. And if you want to go the extra mile, find ways to hire vets and watch the tremendous value they can bring to your financial institution. Thanks again for listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast produced and distributed by Kasasa. A big shout out to Frank Weissman, who provided a ton of help getting this episode out the door. Our theme song was written by Victoria Kerr. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leaving a review. This helps other listeners to discover us. You can also send your comments and feedback to social at kasasa.com.